This episode is mainly a continuation of the previous episode. If you did not hear the previous episode due to volume reasons, we did get many reports that the volume was very low. The next day we updated the episode with a higher volume one. If you have not heard that version yet, it would probably be a good idea to listen to it. To do that, delete the local copy of that episode and then re-download it from whatever podcatcher you use. If you're streaming, you shouldn't have noticed a difference if you listened to it more than like a day after it came out. So yeah, yeah you should be good. Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. This is Katrina Stanton. I'm Yanyash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. And today's episode, we are going to uh, begin by covering some points uh, from last week's, or last episode, on the topic of animals, some corrections and updates, and then if there's time, which there probably will be, we're going to move into the topic of emotions, which I know we've brought up in a previous episode, I think one of the first five, and finally getting around to it was mostly sparred by a commenter whom we'll mention when we get around to that part of the episode. So, Katrina, you were eager to talk about animals. Uh, what's, what's new? Well, uh, last time I talked about Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? The lengthy title by a book by Franz DeWall, uh, the animal, he does not call himself a behaviorist, um, but he's definitely been very active in uh, the field of ethology and a bunch of other fields that he mentions. Animal cognition, evolutionary cognition. What um, is ethology? Ethology? Yeah. You're going to have to read the book. Oh, shit. Okay. Because um, it actually it goes through the history of the study of animal cognition and intelligence, and it starts with a feud between ethologists and behaviorists and goes mm. from there. It's really interesting from a historical perspective and also has a lot of great stories, many of which are anecdotal and some of which are experimental. And science beefs are always fun. Yes, exactly. So I actually read this, even though the title is really unwieldy. I totally recommend this book. The best um, thing about science beefs, I just have to interject really quick, yes. is that unlike regular beefs, the more petty they get, the more fun they get. <laughs> like watching two scientists just be sneering and bitchy at each other is the best. Oxford comma. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. Yeah, that's I, a science beef. Well, okay. My, my favorite science beef was um someone uh, it perfectly just calm comment saying, uh, back and forth about whether nine, uh, 0.99 repeating equals one or not. And someone mentioned, some, it was like a sentence or two, but it ended with, and so you see, 0.99 repeating does equal one. And the reply was, why don't you come here and say that to my face, you bitch? <laughs> <laughs> that, is not, that is not the nice way to speak. Um, yeah, they, they, fell, they fell short of Apple Pores rules right around there. Right. <laughs> but... Yeah, this is it's a fantastic book. I read it, and um, if you recall from our last episode, Edgar had sent us a, a a really nice message asking, I'm sorry, maybe we're commenting that um, it's impossible to get inside animal minds. Everything is just kind of guessing and mind projection fallacy, etc. Mind projection fallacy. And etc. And just like Stephen said, <laughs> it was a long. We, you, you heard the whole thing last time. Yeah, yeah, you heard the whole thing last time. And now that I've read this book, I'm like, wow, this book exists pretty much exclusively. It's like it to answer 
Edgar's question, I guess the 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 moral the moral of the story is wow, we have done a great deal of science with animal cognition and it's come a long way and it's very very interesting and um, I know that I know that they would love to read this or they should love to read this because I did and everyone should. It came out this year. Would you say I don't want to throw a wrench in your your game plan, but would uh-huh. you say that it is as unreasonable to doubt the cognition of animals as it is to doubt the cognition of other people? Um, no, but from an evolutionary perspective, it is kind of unreasonable to to start from a perspective where animals do not think have cognition. Like they have literally nothing going on up there. Yeah, right. like it's a it's a black box. They're just stimulus response machines. Mm-hmm. Considering that we evolved from a common ancestor and evolution um, is gradual. soul into us 60,000 years ago. <laughs> right. So that, that was when Jesus came down and said, <laughs> exactly. now you have souls. Well, people would talk about a spark or the soul suddenly being put into whatever ancestor our hominid ancestor was or, or something like that. Oh my God, it matters. Do people actually make that kind of argument? The people does. do. Oh. Because Catholic, Catholic yeah. uh, one version of Catholic... Uh, well, okay, do non-religious people make the argument that animals are just stimulus response machines? Um, yes, or they'll talk about, again, a spark, okay. or they'll, for some reason, have a bias that makes them think that evolution just doesn't include your brain for some reason, and mm-hmm. human brains kind of sprung, fully formed, um, just in humans. Okay. So... I think I think that sounds... I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are people who say that, but... Those people should not be considered representative. Because Those people are walking straw men. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> How dare you get up and walk around with your straw body? Maybe, okay. maybe Katrina will get us uh, get around that point. I didn't mean I to, to a, get you derailed. There's, okay. there's a big difference between saying it's nothing but a stimulus response machine and saying that animals do not have the sort of reflective equilibrium that that humans have uh-huh. that was you know supercharged over our our recent ancestral environment. Right. So, um, Dewall addresses a bunch of different parts of cognition. Um, So theory of mind, right? The Mm -hmm. ability to model others, the ability, self-awareness. And I got to say, his view is much more nuanced than the mirror test that I was talking about. And then he also addresses the mirror test. And actually, just quick, quickly, the cool thing about the mirror test is that there are only a handful of animals that pass it. I guess humans start passing at the age of two. But even animals that don't pass it, a lot of them understand what mirrors are or seem to through other ways. So for example, great apes, great apes pass it, but monkeys uh, do not pass the mirror test, but like capuchin monkeys are perfectly capable of, even though they don't touch a mark on their face, they still will take a mirror and like use it to look around a corner. Oh, neat. That's like a more clever use of a mirror than finding it. Well, that's actually, I don't, I don't want to also find value judgments on which skills more important. Maybe they think they look really but... handsome with those marks on their faces. It's true. I'm like, thank you, sir. Can I have another? Who's <laughs> that sexy monkey? Oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really and good at turning myself on. Additionally, with capuchins, they um, they don't treat the mirror if they have a you know, like a full length mirror. They don't treat the mirror image as another monkey. So when they um, had either a mirror, a monkey who was a stranger, or a monkey who was familiar to them, they treated the mirror completely differently. If it's a stranger, they turn their back. Like, hmm. I don't even know who you are, bye. Um, if it's the mirror, if it's a, a known monkey, they would interact. And if it's the mirror, they just 
ignored the mirror. Okay. And so we're, we're not afraid of it. Mirrors. No, wait, that doesn't make sense with them using it. Never mind. Right. So it seems like... I was obviously like, joking too. Sorry. Yeah. So it seems like there's something uh, that doesn't quite catch exactly what it wants to using just the mirror test. There are lots of different aspects to cognition. Um, interestingly, and I think we talked about this a little bit, um, in the cognitive realm, non-humans in several ways, you know, they do better than humans at certain tests. Um, some of the tests that I didn't know about, there's a chimpanzee. And Ooh, is this the having the numbers flash on the screen and has yes. to touch them in order? Yeah, that's an awesome one. So, I moo you. Is the name of the chimp. I move you too. <laughs> and yes, he can remember um, strings of up to nine numbers and that flash on the screen for a fraction of a second. And then he'll touch the numbers in the correct order on the screen. Humans can be trained to do that with a string of five numbers, but for a longer amount of time to memorize a string of five numbers after a couple seconds. Adult humans? Yes, adult humans. Damn. So in response, kind of funny, in response to that experiment coming out, a bunch of people, a bunch of scientists got together and they just kept training themselves, really trying to see if they could beat this chimpanzee. And I don't know if they succeeded or not, but it's certainly not something that an adult can do easily and without significant training. Um, additionally, when playing against each other, you might know from learning about chimpanzees in the past that they're very strategic. They're very social animals. And um, a lot of what they do involves deception and long-term maneuvering, social maneuvering. So in another experiment, two chimps were playing a computer game against each other, a strategic computer game. And they found that these chimpanzees reached optimal playing strategy much more quickly and more reliably than adult humans playing against each other. That's cool. So they postulated that it's because the chimps need that kind of strategic thinking for their lives. Mm -hmm. And um, Franz de Waal makes the argument over and over again that kind of like beak length for the types of nuts that you can crack or, or seeds that you can eat, your cognition is also ad adaptive towards whatever your situation is, right? If you need to be able to think strategically, then chimpanzees can do that. Um, if you are a jay caching nuts and worms, um, they're much better than humans are remembering where they've cached things and also remembering what they cached where. Um, and they, they did that test with perishable items and non-perishable items that they give the jays. But that that's, I think, sort of what we were talking about last time was that what you're cognitively adapted to do depends on your environment. And yes, humans, yeah. Absolutely. So like, you and I have very little intuitive skill of like what it takes to be a good squirrel or mm -hmm. be a good fish, right? Just because we didn't, our more Jason ancestors weren't really doing a lot of that stuff. So uh, how does this tie into... Most of us have no idea how to be so adorable that someone else will feed us and house <laughs> us for our entire lives. The dogs are back for this episode. I'm not sure if that was clear from the tenor. <laughs> Um, well, so Anyesh made the point that the only thing that he cares about, like literally the only thing that gives um, an entity moral worth is its intellectual complexity. So talking about how different animals are more complex than humans, more intellectually and cognitively complex mm -hmm. than human beings in certain areas, 
kind of helps make the point that maybe it we don't know all of the areas because we haven't found the right way to test them for a lot of these animals. So, for example... I Well, I, mean, I would argue that being very good at certain tasks is not necessarily a complexity thing. It's It's a specialization thing. And what makes humans special is that we do have the complexity across a large domain of different types of cognition. Okay. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, but we're really crap at finding things that we've hidden if we hide a lot of different things. Yeah, we well, are, but well, we, we don't can, need to be. Yeah, right, we can think ahead and make right. organizing um, strategies. So right now what we're looking at in terms of animal behavior is we're taking inspiration from our own behaviors. Saying, why aren't they like us? And then we're saying, are they? Yeah. To what extent? How do we know? Right? Right. We aren't even looking at a bunch of the amazing, cool things that an animal mind is capable of. Right. Because one of the, the things that Duvall is frustrated about is all we're asking over and over, our central question is, how are we unique and special? How are humans unique and special? Well, we really need to feel special, so we better figure out how we're unique and special in terms of our brains and pinpoint that. And there's a lot of goalposts moving. Um, and he, he talks about those, you know, when he's talking about the history of this, of, um, of exploring animal cognition. Okay. I don't know if we've touched on the, the phrase goalpost moving in the past. I don't know if it's a formal logical fallacy or either an informal logical fallacy or if it's just a bad reasoning tool. But basically when your position has been defeated, you move to another position and say, all right, well, we didn't talk about this thing, this whole new thing yet. That's, that's goalpost moving, where you, where you move the victory condition from one place to another once your position's been beaten. Mm -hmm. I've, I've heard that be a complaint, too, uh, about artificial intelligence, that people say, well, a computer could never play chess, so it's not smart. And then a computer beats the world ch uh, chess grandmaster, and they're like, well, that's obviously not really that important, but a computer could never beat a human at Go. And then the computer beats a human at Go, and they're like, well, I mean, that's not really the essence of what it means to be human either. A computer could never write a poem, and then a computer writes, well, it could be interpreted as a poem. <laughs> and they've been, writing, they've been writing jokes for years. Yeah. Uh, they're driving better than people are now. Right. Uh, so every time a computer does something better than a human, it's like, well, that's not really <laughs> what it means to be human. There was they're, a... they're beating people in flight, um, fighter pilot flight simulations. I was actually surprised that that hadn't happened a long time ago. Like when I heard that that was a new thing. For a long time. But, yeah, but when yeah. I heard it was that they were just recently started beating people, I was like, "Oh, I, I was apparently wrong at how long this has been a thing. I thought well, it had been for yeah. a while now." Well, it's recently beat the best person who's pretty much his entire job is to f play computers, play artificial intelligences cool. in flight simulations. Yeah. Um, so yeah. cool and terrifying. <laughs> well, and best of all, uh, the computers will not be limited by G forces. Like a human body, you can only put under so much stress before it blacks out or dies. They can do some maneuvers that we could not ever physically pull off. And Yash says, "Best of all," but <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> well, we want these machines on our side in I, case of a war. Best of all, they'll be horrifyingly good at it. <laughs> right. This is incredibly worrying. Um, well, I'm very happy that machines can lift and haul dirt much better than humans do. Yeah. It makes our house building much easier and faster. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to, to point out, in, in terms of adaptive brains, I wanted to mention a couple other animals, and um, Duval mentions this in his book too, like maybe in order to uh, study strategic thinking, you study chimpanzees. Maybe in order to study conforming to a social norm, you study schooling fish or guppies. Mm -hmm. um, 
these animals all have different strengths and some of them have very generalized strengths that are similar to ours and those would be animals like great apes or dolphins or um, elephants. Although elephants are really understudied because okay. they're huge. Uh, and you might be interested to know that they have three times as many neurons as we do. Yeah, in their no, I, giant brains. Right, right. And whales. There's there's a lot of animals that do. Um, I, a lot of the function of the brain is just to move your muscles and and react to your environment. So as you get bigger, your brain brain tends to get bigger too. I think elephants also pass. So yeah, what you're talking about. I forget what the formal name is, but yeah, your the brain size isn't just it. It's the brain size relative to body size. Right. Like corvids have really tiny brains compared to humans, but smart as hell. Right. And I think that um, elephants pass the body or the brain size to body size thing, even how big they are. Okay. Maybe some animals, well, maybe it was great apes or something. Some other animal did. So that, I don't that think... on its own is completely useless. But so... there's one. I don't think my argument was ever that animals have no moral weight, just that it is, you know, significantly less than that of humans. It's okay. I do want to mention one thing. Um, while it kind of briefly addresses the idea that it's the body size to brain size instead of the number of neurons and says that it's. Um, been shown to be the number of neurons. Huh. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't think whales do have more neurons than we do. I just think they have much larger brains. I think it's the elephants that have many more than we do. And if I'm wrong about that, I will post a correction for myself. Um, I didn't get to my corrections. Oh, please do the corrections. I'm going to correct myself about, about some things. One, I said that I thought that um, the mask that experimenters wore while banding crows and then that crows were able to communicate to each other about was a president's face. It was a vice president's face. <laughs> oh my god. It, we, was, it was Dick Cheney's face. Do we, do we need corrections to this level of minutia though? Somebody will get on us about it. Ah, oh, those bastards. All right. <laughs> it doesn't defeat the argument though, so that's Yeah, fine. yeah. Um, we spoke about a monkey study in which there were more and less desirable treats that a monkey would happily eat cucumbers, which are not as desirable as grapes, until they saw the other monkey getting grapes. And you asked me, Anyash asked me, so the monkey with the grape, did they refuse the grape seeing that the other monkey got cucumber? And I said, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And they did. They I did. was wrong. Yes. So the like- monkey that got the grape refused the grape? Yes. So oh. They're like catty two-year-olds, which like they just want the toy the other kid has. No. No, no, no. Because I, I remember the monkey with the cucumber threw the cucumber down. It was like, I, I'm not taking your cucumber if he's getting a grape. Uh-huh. But you're saying the monkey with the grape refused the grape, too. Out of concern for fairness? That's awesome. Yes. Uh, they're a very reciprocal group of animals. Capuchins share their food, and um, they share very generously with with individuals that they like or want to curry favor with, or but it would be unseemly. And probably not necessarily go well for that monkey in the future. Ah. So there's some potential future planning there. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's, I was going to say it sounds almost exclusively like future planning, but not necessarily. It could just be, an, um, you know, to just to try and steel man the position that monkeys are automata. It could just be basically like a robot reaction of I'm programmed for fairness. I'm, that's not fair. I'm going to stop doing that. But well, I think you could say the same of humans. Yes. Right. That's, that's, that's what I was going to say too. But uh, the other way to think about it is that, yeah, they are thinking, well, shit, as soon as that you know researcher leaves and puts us back in the same cage, he's going to kick the shit out of me, <laughs> seeing, seeing that I ate all these grapes while making eye contact with him, so I'll stop now. You, know, I mean... you should load up on grapes so he has all those calories and fight off his attacker. They have, they have some long-term goals. Um, I thought it was kind of cool, the idea of male chimps 
alpha chimps going on safaris with sexually receptive females to avoid competition. Safaris? Safa- I know, they call it safaris. She comes okay. in air quotes. Yeah, oh yeah. It's for those who aren't watching the video feed, there were air quotes around safari. Everyone could hear the air quotes. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah, when a female comes into sexual receptivity, a lot of times the alpha male will escort her for, for several days huh. to the outskirts of the territory where they can enjoy alone time without any interference. It's like exactly what high school kids do at their first car do. Right? Let's go, let's go out to make out point. Right? Where there aren't other jocks to compete for your favor. Right? Or parental figures. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And I, I, there's something to be said about where we, I guess, draw the, the lines in this, not even lines in the sand, where we draw the grid. Where, what kind of, what am I trying to say? We want to make sure we identify in advance what sport we're playing before we say that animals aren't any good at it. Right? Like mm-hmm. we say, you know, not even the same, uh, same league or whatever. Yeah. Um, it is interesting that, yeah, some, many animals are better than humans at many things because they need to be, and that's what their ancestors, ancestors were good at. But I don't know, maybe it's my my species... 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 Speciesism? Speciesism. Speciesism? Sure. Bias leaking through, my humanist bias, that I would say that, you know, my, my ability to, to... As much as I... I'm, a, I'm an avid squirrel lover... But um, <laughs> as, as much as uh, I love squirrels, I wouldn't say that, like, their ability to remember where they put stuff, like, makes them smarter than me in a meaningful way. It makes them better at finding stuff where they hit it. Um, I guess that really depends on what you're doing. Exactly. And if I'm a squirrel hiding nuts, and if I was as if I was a squirrel and as, as bad at hiding nuts as I am now, I would die. Uh, <laughs> but since I'm not a squirrel... Um, <laughs> So yeah, that, that's it, right? It, it depends on what you're doing. And then that comes into where you want to weigh in on what does it matter what you're doing and do, and put the value judgments on what we can do versus what they can do. Right. So, th- so that, that makes it much more of a value game than a just intellectual game. A lot of the problems with people's research is that they were comparing, um, in large part, they were psychologists who were comparing children to chimpanzees. And the experiments were just simply not set up in the right way. Partially because the the person who's running the experiment is a human being, right? Mm-hmm. And if there's a human being who is running an experiment with two small human beings and explaining it to them, usually they have a one of the kids. The kids have a parent there, maybe even are sitting on their lap. It has to be if you're if you're doing human stuff, it has to be comfortable for the kids. Okay. Versus an experimenter, a human experimenter working with a chimpanzee where they Well, you'd think if a chimpanzee was smart enough, you could bring a chimpanzee mom in to explain to the chimpanzee kid how to do this right. I was just gonna say, let me go ahead and see if I can put words in Nacha's mouth and feel agree <laughs> with them. Which is if the chimps are running the experiment, they do it the other way, but they're not because they're not as smart as us. Would you well, say something kind of like that? So Nod. the so experimenters <laughs> have been able to <clears throat> organize things like the computer game that I just mentioned, where it's chimp versus chimp, and, and various experiments where they're chimp doing things that they're actually interested in, like noticing if another chimp has noticed where an experimenter hid a treat to see if they have to either run to it or if they'll walk past it pretending they didn't see it and come back later when no one's paying attention. Cool. See, that right? is the really cool stuff that you don't start thinking of doing until you actually start doing better science, right? And that's awesome. Because, uh, yeah, yeah set, putting them up against kids is great for seeing how well human kids compare to the average chimp, mm-hmm. but it's not really the be- best litmus test for, like, 
chimp native intelligence, right? Well, it's not even very good for seeing how they compare to chimps because the situation is so basically different. That's true. How, um, how, how they compare to chimps under, like, basically duress circumstances. Yes. As opposed to, like, pampered baby human. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, if you have two kids doing a game with each other, but in terms of the chimps, they're in separate cages, they um, have to interact through bars... Great apes are notoriously difficult to control and work with, and they can be very dangerous. An experimenter, you know, can't touch them, can't really interact with them. Maybe it turns can. out, shockingly, that apes care more about what other... And I'm saying apes. We're apes. Right, right. So let's say chimps. Chimps care a lot more about what another chimp is doing, where another yeah, chimp is looking, what another chimp is interested in. Yeah than what a human experimenter is doing. Those speciesist sons of bitches. Although, you know... It, probably, it, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. It, it kind of seems like these great, the dangerous great apes may be uh, doing a bit of game theory. They're like, if we're always really unpleasant and mean and attack humans all the time, they'll be less motivated to keep us in captivity and do experiments on us. So anyone who gets <laughs> caught, just act dumb and attack the humans all the time and they'll leave us the fuck alone. They they had this at the big meeting <laughs> yeah. before they before the humans moved in to capture them. Yeah, yeah. I I have a very high bar. I guess I should mention that Inuyash prefaced the last episode by saying that he didn't expect to change anyone's mind, or that rather he didn't expect the episode to change anyone's mind. Mm -hmm. And while my position hasn't really been flip flopped, I'm still I think on the same side of the fence as Katrina, but I think I moved my camp a little closer to the fence. Just one way of thinking about it was when you made that analogy to. Uh, like insect minds versus like your thermostat. Mm -hmm. And I kind of dismissed it because I'm like, well, I mean, there's something different. But then the more I thought about it, and I mean, yes, there's differences, and I don't want to be like pedantic and point out all of them, but really you'd said something along the lines of, you know, how many thermostats would, would I have to count up before I would sacrifice a human for it or something? Mm -hmm. And I realized the answer would be, you know, all of them times however many there possibly could be. Yeah. And then I was thinking the same thing of like, well, that's sort of true of like, and we actually had this at our last local meetup, there was a wasp bugging us at the table, and I was like, I think, you know, barring the the harm to the environment at large, I'd be willing to sacrifice hundreds of billions of wasps for the sake of one human, because they're just like, they're just mindless wasps. Right. You've that's, met one wasp, you've met every wasp. I think that's probably mostly true, uh, but maybe there, I mean, I'm sure there's some differences depending on some varieties. I'm sure wasp is a large category. Yeah, so... Um... Stephen Stephen made that statement um, just a few days after we recorded two weeks ago, and I was I was devastated. Ooh. Yes, I was devastated because I thought that I had failed at responding to clearly flawed um, arguments that Anyash made, and then I and then I shared what my answers to those would have been, and apparently it didn't change anyone's mind. But hopefully it'll change your minds. Here's what I didn't say when Eniash said that a thermostat is the moral equivalent to a slug. We made thermostats. We know exactly how thermostats work and how complex they are and exactly what's going on. Humans, although we've been trying an awful lot, haven't even been able to simulate um, something as simple as a flatworm, as simple as platyhelminthes, right? Which is an adorable flatworm, but it is a flatworm. It is much more simple than, say, an earthworm, which is an annelid. It is much, much more simple than 
a slug. It's got, like, just over 100 neurons, right? Like, yeah. 103? It's got, like, a little bilobed brain. We, we haven't even been able to figure that out, and I think that goes back to the, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? We are just kind of piercing the surface of the complexity of even simple animals. Not to mention somewhat complex animals like wasps that have differentiated jobs and do amazing things like taste with their ovipositors. What are ovipositors? So... Feet tongues? No, not quite. Um, an ovipositor is where is the tube on their butts where they lay eggs. And it's also a stinger for, for animals in that group of animals. Can it sting me and lay eggs in me at the same time? Kind of. God damn it. Oh, now we're definitely killing all the yeah, wasps. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so here's an organism which, really cool, it can, can kind of sting, lay eggs, lay larvae, and pass venom, right? And See, taste so they can, like, feel around inside, inside a cocoon, oh. figure out by taste where the, where the right place to lay their eggs are. When you say... Lay them with ve- paralyzing venom. Yeah. Then they can, um, I was just reading this article, there's a wasp with, that has a felting ability, also on the ovipositor. So as they pull back out, they felt the cocoon closed. See, when you say really cool, I I feel the same thing that you guys must have felt when I said it was awesome that the jet fighters (laughs) could, computer jet fighters could outfight the human ones. So to me, that is just horrifying. But but you're like wasp, whatever, who cares? Wasps are, wasps are learning creatures. Uh, wasps can do amazing things that we are still, like that article just came out. Oh, they can felt certain parasitoid ichneumonum wasps can felt with their ovipositors. Well, that's cool. Um, all of these things we're kind of just discovering and it's not necessarily cognitive stuff, but it's also cognitive stuff. There's, um, a lot of people working on wasp behavior. Compare that to a thermostat, which we seriously know exactly how it works. And it's very simple. So I, that's the that's the one point that I, I just wanted to respond to is is that one. And then I'll get to your other one. You bet. You know, so the thermostat thing is, I sort of used it as a jumping off point for like, say, and at, at, the, at the meetup, I was talking with somebody and I had said, all right, so forget actually getting a billion wasps together. What if we simulated a billion wasp minds on, we emulated them on a computer. Um, we can't do it yet, but there's every reason to think that it would be doable in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, we can emulate great chess players on computers. Would it be like a bad thing to delete the program when you're done looking at it? Like it would be with a person, uh, if you're emulating a full human, a full human mind. Um, I, would I, it be a bad thing to, if you were able to emulate a chimp mind to get rid of it when you're done looking at it? Right. And so I think this comes into like, when you say, look at all the complex things wasps can do. It's not the same thing as saying, look at how smart they are, how important they are. I feel like you're conflating, con- conflating? conflating the complexity of, you mentioned like we can't, we can't make flatworms. So like you're conflating their atomic complexity, their intellectual complexity, and the things they can do complexity into all like this one thing. And I think they're, they're very different things. Okay. Um, like Why if, is if, this important? Because it, it, they're, they're, they're different goalposts. If... So I'm judging the thermostat based on what it can do, what use it has. Thermostats have a great deal of use. They're very helpful. They probably save lives. Hmm. Yes, because people die of heat and cold. Thermostats are there to help people not die 
They're very useful, right? Right. Thermostats, um, thermostats do cool stuff. They do very simple cool stuff. So if we're comparing a fucking thermostat mm. to a wasp, you know, there there are different places to compare them on. I think if we're comparing a thermostat to a flatworm, a flatworm can do some cool things too, but they're really simple. They're they're not that simple. They're it turns out not as simple as a thermostat. Because we can't even figure out how... We can't make a flatworm if we want to. But, like, the thing with, like, how complicated they are, like, would thermostats matter more if they're more complicated to make? I certainly don't think so. Well, the thing is, we don't... would flatworms be less important if we did understand them? I don't think just the fact that we can or can't understand something is what determines whether it's uh, of moral value or not. You spoke about if we were talking about aliens. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, we didn't know that many things about them, that you would err on the side of caution. Mm -hmm. All right? I'm talking about the known versus the unknown. Okay. And if something is complex to the point that it is in the unknown and you don't actually have a complete bearing on all of its abilities, all of its capacities, what its umwelt is, what its its inner life is, how it sees the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, then why would you try to make that equivalence? See, I totally err on the side of not torturing animals, of, you know, not killing them needlessly. But on the other hand, I do not walk with a broom sweeping my steps before I step in the fear that I might, you know, step on a worm or something. Because I do not think I need to err that far. There's a difference between, you know, killing a dog without needing to and stepping on a worm when you're walking. I don't check my steps for those kinds of insects because I just don't care. I don't think you need to err that far where you're literally starting to get incapacitated. Well, we and that's, also but that live... said, you also don't seek out, like, anthills just to, just to set them on fire, right? No. Right. Exactly. So, like, there, there's... And, that, and I, that's why I feel like I'm still on your side of the fence and you're on that side of the fence on that particular issue as well. Um, that there's a difference between saying, like, look, they have no value whatsoever and they're, they're utterly pointless and saying that uh, I would... Like, if there's an anthill in my way where I want to build a, a building, I'll bulldoze the anthill. Right. And you'll probably also bulldoze the prairie dog colony and poison the prairie dogs and... Would I have to poison them? Hopefully not. Yeah. But, oh, it might be a little bit more expensive for you, so you'd have to kind of try to figure out how much you not poisoning the prairie dogs is worth. You know, like, there's... Right, that that um, is something I would have to consider if I was a land developer. But then that said, like, <laughs> what I guess what what is the answer to that conundrum, right? So like, yeah, there's going to be a cost benefit analysis where some number of beings on Earth will be harmed by something that you do, and like building a dam or a bolt or a building is a good example because it will necess- it'll like necess- necessitate those beings, things, including mm-hmm. but, humans, are going to be hurt by the things that you do. Mm-hmm. Right. right, but then like, do you not do them because you'll like? What if it's literally an anthill and you just want to build? You just want to put up a light post, and like there's an anthill right there, right? Like, and that's all that's going to get out of the way. Like, do you not put it up because of the anthill, or do you put it two inches over to the side? No, but like, well, I guess I'm guess I'm putting that to you. Think, think of an of a of a conundrum that actually makes you answer the question. Like, do you say, well, you know what? Despite the fact that the street will be a little darker, might you know there might be a higher risk of car accidents and you know kids getting run over because it's dark. I'm not going to weigh that that distant possibility against the the actual lives of these ants. No, but I think that we're getting a little lost in the weeds here. I think so. (laughs) So the other part that I wanted to respond to, one is, again, why even talk about thermostats? It 
has nothing to do with, it doesn't even compare to any, any animals except, I don't know, maybe sponges. Well, I, I think all life, all intelligence is basically a computational process. And if thermostats do any sort of computation, then they are somewhere on that spectrum, even if it's really far from pretty much anything. And that, that's a way of asking, where do you draw the line? How simple does the computation have to be? And different people draw the lines in different places. All right. And then what happened was you started to talk about um, our trolley problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in this trolley problem, there is a dog on one side. Or there are uh, not just a dog, there are 50 dogs tied to one set of tracks, and there's one human tied to the other set. Right. You, the other thing that convinced Stephen was that kind of thought experiment. No, it, it wasn't specifically the dogs thing, because I, I would put more moral worth on a dog than, say, a flatworm. But, like I said, if we could simulate ten times the number of flatworms that exist on Earth and kill all of them versus killing one innocent person, I, I guess I would wonder... And I, I mean, it's, it's pointless to put like an actual number on it, but is there a number where you'd say there's enough flatworms here to where, sorry, best friend, you're going to have to die? I mean, so, so you said it's your best friend. Let's put something else. Let's say... Let's, so let's imagine an actual dog in the room. Let's, let's imagine um, an actual animal that we know and care about. Mm-hmm. Um, like Dio, who is here licking his paw right now adorably. Mm-hmm. And making lick noises, which is not so adorable, is it? He's trying to lick off all my pets. He <laughs> says, you are a speciesist. I no longer want your pets on me. So there's Dio, and he's tied to some tracks, and he's about to get hit by an oncoming train. But there's someone from work who you really don't like, mm-hmm. and who just makes life terrible, and you think they probably have a negative overall utility Okay. Um, tied to the other side of the tracks. Are you asking me specifically? I am because you already know what I'm. You are looking at me, and you already know what I'm going to say. Kill Dio. No, because I'm telling you what I would do. uh, I know, but that's not what you said last time. So after we finished recording, you said to me and Dio (laughs) that there are many humans that you would sacrifice. There are, but no one that Dio. I work with. Even the, <laughs> oh, yeah. even the most unpleasant person I work with, I think, is worth more than a deal. But, I mean, if we're talking about uh, murderers or, or rapists, child molesters, then yes, totally. Yeah, no. Dio's worth more than one of them. There's there's something to be said there. Um, I had a... Uh, I, re- I lost a pet recently, and it is quite possible... I mean, I, I would have th- actually had to think about it for more than five seconds, if, if, if the doctor told me, hey, we can kill five people you'll never meet and your cat won't die, I would have, I would have thought about it for a second. But, it, but if the doctor said to me, or if some mad scientist came to me and said, I can kill five people or a random cat, I'd be like, well, you're insane, kill the cat. Yeah. But that's not, so the, the thing is that it's not talking about the internal value of the animal, it's talking about its value as an instrument to my happiness. Right. Right? So like that, that but that's a different issue from like its complexity and so its, its internal value. The right? reason that I'm bringing this up isn't because I think that it's totally the way to go about deciding, you know, what's worth more, this life or that life. Uh, what's worth more, a dog, a dog or a cat? What's worth more? This a, or th- a dog, easily. <laughs> As I alienate half our listeners. Wow. <laughs> Including a third of your, a third of your hosts. <laughs> so this is where we're running into some serious biases. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. And 
this is a place where we might be able to benefit by stepping back and trying to debias ourselves. For sure. I will just mention that I don't think that trolley problems are a great tool for coming to good real world answers either. What they are are good intuition pumps. Mm-hmm. And if you if you do sit and think, you know what, there's probably no number of thermostats that I would be uh, that, I, <laughs> that I would trade for a person, but you might not say that about say um, a, a sufficient number of flatworms or a sufficient number of more complex artificial intelligences or something, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And certainly those, those those conundrums will be coming with computers in the future. Right. Uh, so like you can't just declare now, or I guess you can, but you'd have to back yourself up about like, oh yeah, no, no matter what the computer can do, I don't care. Yeah. Like, and- uh, what if it can perfectly simulate you and your mom? Like, then do you not care still? So like, you know, it, these, are- the, these things are brought up not as real world problems today, but they're brought up as intuition pumps to say, all right, let's think about what you're actually, the implications of what you're thinking. And there are real world problems, right? Like, oh, how many low paid workers might lose their jobs if this form of factory farming is changed or abolished or banned? There are those real-world problems, but my suggestion for, for some of the thinking, the thought experiments, is to get away far away from real-world problems okay. and imagine that you are on an alien world, you have X information, and um, you want to know what decision somebody else might make, and you're guessing. So I guess all I'm saying is um, a good exercise is to really try to remove yourself from it and talk about the zergles and the blurgles and all you know about the zergles is that they seem to have rudimentary tool use where they can um they can attach up to five sticks together to make creative new tools and carry them to a place where they're going to use them right so they collect the materials beforehand and they carry them up to 10 miles to where they can actually use them to retrieve food. And the Blurgles. Oh, yeah, I forgot which ones I was talking about. But we were talking about the Nurgles. The Nurgles? Yeah. Oh, I never said Nurgles. Yeah. Whatever. What are to follow? <laughs> I heard Nurgles and Blurgles. Okay. I thought Zergles and Blurgles. Oh, Zergles and Blurgles. Zergles and Blurgles. Blurgles. So also, you know that the Blurgles um, are able to cooperate with another third species, the Nurgles, ah, um, in order to hunt because they use different hunting strategies. One of them flushes them out. One species flushes the prey out from under rocks. Um, the other one can eat them when they are out in the open. And the other one, if they're going after something in the open, it goes under a rock. Is the, pl- is the prey the, the Nurgles? Nurgles? No. Okay. It's just, it's an additional prey item. Okay. The blops. And... Um, <laughs> You get this information and then you ask, well, what would Sarah? So Sarah is the um, is the commander of a, a group of Zyridians who have just landed and they're running dangerously low on food. They need to add some some food source mm-hmm. and they are considering hunting either the Zergles or the Blurgles and Nurgles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what what should what should Sarah decide for her also alien species? So I, I forgot the names of all the things. But, <laughs> so the Zergles uh, have the so tool like, use. I mean, so, some of them seem to eat something that aren't other animals, so you might consider eating those. Eating the I mean, blocks, the blobs. I mean, maybe. But like, so that, that's the kind of thing too. Like everything that can be said about a flatworm can also be said about a flower, or like an acorn. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, is, they, they evolve. They're, 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 they're complex. They have dividing cells. Uh, they, 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 I guess flatworms so flatworms move, have which... brains. I know, but, but, 
But is there any, I guess, I don't know. So I guess I, I, mean, I, a, I lot of, just... a lot of tree networks can communicate with each other, yes. which is, you know, flowers a open sort their petals, of a brain. Flowers open their petals in mm-hmm. response to stimuli. Venus flytraps eat things. Yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, so I, I don't know. I, I guess. I'm sorry. I don't uh, want to belittle. I don't want to belittle the other kingdoms that aren't Animalia. Okay. Um, <laughs> kingdomists here. If we, could we got. just. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. But we're I, sticking I, with the, the alien. Yeah. We're sticking right with now. the aliens. Okay. To be clear, I didn't mean to completely derail. I was That was just something that was on my mind. I knew that there, there was this nagging thing in my head that was trying to come out, and that was that was it that I wanted to make that comparison 10 minutes ago, but t- it's gone. Okay. It's gone forever, so we'll, we'll move past to the 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 zeros and blurgles. Right. Um, so, so which is, although we which should is, ask Katrina later on if if what's the moral worth of, of a network of trees compared to a flatworm? There's there's larger costs though with like trees like they right they house lots of things and yeah stuff. they sequester carbon so yeah. that too. Yeah. Um, but I guess I forgot which ones did what. I, it, and it wasn't, <laughs> it's so it wasn't, okay. It's yeah. okay. It was so the tool uh, using ones and the cooperative hunting ones. There's literally nothing else on the planet. So there is. Apparently, those are the only things that are edible by our aliens. Fair enough. Those are the only things that the aliens can eat. So they either have to. Can the aliens eat each other? <laughs> They're yeah. not going to. I, I asked, they can, but they won't. I asked that because we were talking about this before, and you know, like how we we place value on on things because you care more about them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think this is off the air last time, and I'm not, I'm not a cannibal, but. <laughs> um, I said that, you know, there are circumstances under which, you know, otherwise decent human beings would kill and eat other human beings. Yeah. I mean, they if, can if drawn leave. Because they care more about themselves than other people, right? They can leave or put themselves in stasis and wait, or they can... So I think that you might correctly identify that we don't have adequate information to make that judgment. Of yes. One species can make uh, shows rudimentary tool use and forethought and another species it does cooperative hunting with the third species well that's true did you answer like answer what the the question the zirkle one what would you advise sarah um i mean so like it sort of depends i guess and this is kind of kind of defeat the thought experiment because the point you're making is fine it's a good intuition pump that we have limited information how can we make this judgment and the the, the, the correct answer is mostly that we can't but like you know, if it literally is like your whole crew starving to death, you just eat the one that's bigger, like or, or the one that <laughs> oh the gosh. one that looks like a, like one that looks or like the one that's easier meal. to catch. Right. So, yeah. like, I mean, like it, that's why I brought up the cannibalism thing is because you know if it really comes down to it, you're gonna do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, if it really comes down to it, I'd eat a chimp. Like, I wouldn't want to, but if I was literally starving to death, you bet your ass I would. Oh, uh, so which, if you were starving to death, you would kill and eat a chimp. You wouldn't kill and eat a child, right? Or w- I'm sorry. How I hungry have said am that I? As, <laughs> you are so hungry that if you do not do this, you will die. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> that's, like I said, I, I, I guess I... Is ever... the child smart enough to eat me after <laughs> I die? So... Because if the child can keep going, that's that's an important consideration. That's true. I might be willing to die to keep the child going. Is it two years old or, like, ten years old? Like, if I said, look, eat me in the... Like, there, actually, this is a great thing in the, the book The Martian. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did the, the... If you haven't seen the movie, do so. Um... But I'm going to go on, assuming that you have, because you're all cool people. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> um, the the crew on the the Hermes uh, spacecraft makes a, a flyby past Earth to pick up supplies and then loop back around Mars to save. Well, spoiler, whatever. Halfway through, <laughs> um, one of the crew members is talking with her parents about what they're planning and all that, and they're like, "Yeah, but look, what if you miss the the drop off? You're all going to die." And she's like, "Well, look, you can't tell everyone, but we're not all going to die. I'm the smallest." 
If we miss the drop, they're immediately going to take cyanide capsules and I'm going to subsist on the remaining supplies and them for the flight back. I'll make it home. And so that is a calculation that you can make. And they made it based on her size and uh, the, the relative size to the other people, um, the, the amount of nutrients that she would need to survive. Those are the kind of calculations you make if, that you make if it's literally starving to death. Mm-hmm. So like if the kid could eat me, I would last longer than the kid as far as a food supply. Mm-hmm. So all other things being equal, that would be a, a, a decent trade, right? But, you know, if it's a six-year-old... I so s- if we're talking about... I, I, still, I actually probably would not kill the kid. I would just let... I would just starve, and I guess the kid would probably have to end up starving too if he doesn't know how to, you know, roast and eat me. Because I would rather, I would probably rather die than to kill a child. Mm-hmm. That's sort of where I was. I, w- I would end up too, but I don't right. want to. But we're also we're also again get, going back into speciesism with yes. this kind of thought experiment. Yeah. we should really be thinking alien A, alien B, right. alien C. Okay. Right. Right. Well, again. I- uh, I, I never actually answered when, when you asked about Sarah, but uh, I would leave it up to the aliens because I don't I don't see why I'm involved in this. If they want to eat one species or another... What do you think Sarah will say? What do I think she'll say? She So they I, are a, an inter, um, interplanetary traveling species that arrived on this planet, but something went wrong, and what, what decision do you think that Sarah will make? Oh, what decision do I think she would make for her crew as in to yes. telling them which animal to eat? Uh-huh. I don't know. Again, probably whichever one is easiest to kill or whichever <laughs> one provides the most uh, calories. Okay. And that, I mean, I... So your model of Sarah, who you, you don't know much about, is um, is that the intelligence and that stuff, it wouldn't really matter to her. Not while she didn't have time to assess it. Like, I mean, because like, those, those two species that you laid out are... Uh, complex in their different ways right mm-hmm. um you know it's and then that comes kind of down on a value judgment maybe sarah species care cares more about social interaction than they do about tool making uh although they're in a spaceship so they ca- kind of care about both yeah. and she's not alone so she cares about social interaction but what um, if sarah what if sarah's not an alien species what if she's human then, then what would she say yeah. probably the same thing I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah yeah okay so kind of on the same which would you kill and eat um, I'd say that we don't have enough information. Like, but like, while you're gathering information and your crew's starving to death, what do you do? Like, you're the captain. You got to make a call, or not? But if you like, well, why you're not I'm also calls, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty I'm speciesist as you are. Yeah. Um, and since we're choosing um, whatever Sarah's Sarah's race of people to identify with as ourselves, yeah. then I don't know the cooperative hunting ones. Okay, you lead them first. Yeah. Over the planning head tool using ones. See, I think I would look back <laughs> on. I, I, I would only have my own experience to draw. I have a little bit of bias towards tool use, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I'd only so have I like my corpus. own experience to draw on. So, like, I imagine that Sarah would be in a similar boat where she'd look back and be like, "What are the animals on Earth that do these kinds of things? How complex are they?" Well, she, if I had to guess, I'd probably say that these ones are dumber. If she cared about which ones dumber, right? Do you hear Assuming that recently? That they saw a. Uh, I don't remember if it was a crow or if it was some species of corvid. Uh, used a tool to carry another tool to someplace where it could use that other tool. Yeah. That was awesome. I just, I love these birds, man. Yeah. Actually, the other weird thing about this book is I had just finished a section on New Caledonian crows in the wild using a hooked hooked uh, twigs as tools. Okay, cool. And I was just listening to that on the radio and they're like, this is the first time that tool use has been shown in these birds. Oh and- no, it's been around for a while. 
And I like I just read about it in this book, I, I which remember... admittedly came out in this year in 2016. Yeah, and I saw a YouTube video like at least five years ago of a crow unbending a paperclip yeah, yeah, and yeah. reaching in to grab stuff. And, like it wasn't it wasn't even a captive. tool. What? So the difference is captive and wild. Oh. Ah, okay. so the captive New Caledonian crows. Um, that's the one that had been shown a while ago. Is that they would literally bend paper clips in order to use them as tools yeah. in order to fetch something. And um, friends of Wall said in his book, he's like, nobody should have been surprised about that, considering we already knew that wild New Caledonian crows bent sticks. Okay. And then so it was kind of funny to now hear on the radio, for the first time, it's been shown that wild New Caledonian crows bend sticks. Right. In other news, for the first time, fire hot. Um, (laughs) What was, there's a word for it, the type of animal that lives in conjunction with humans but isn't domesticated, Um, specifically like city birds, squirrels. Or elephants. Or elephants. Uh, Elephants aren't domesticated. no, they do their thing. No, um, they're very wild. They do their thing as opposed to like... They're they're often trained right, and, right. and used for... Well, I think Stephen is referring to animals that are not trained, but just live near humans, like right. coyotes and, and pigeons. Well, and I, I was thinking crows specifically because I saw another YouTube video where they were throwing nuts at crosswalks in the street. And the crows would, yeah. Go over at crosswalk time. So like, not only were they using traffic to open nuts, but uh-huh. they were smart enough to use it when the new traffic would stop there. And so, uh, but I don't know if that would count for... Uh, that's tool Captivity use. or non-captivity. Though. Oh, that's wild. Oh, good. Yeah, because that's so, ball. Yeah, they're and referring... That, honestly, I probably wouldn't have thought of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> not, not, in the, not in the lifespan of a crow, anyway. So, um, that's awesome. No, and I, I don't want you to be too disheartened. I, I, I don't think anyone should ever be cruel to animals. I care deeply for them, you know, to the, to, ex- to the extent that people, I guess, are permitted to be cruel to animals. It's like when you have a really good reason, like you're starving to death, or... Look, it's going to take us 30 apes, but I think we can crack uh, uploading human minds. Uh, like, that, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed for me to, to say those 30 apes aren't, aren't worth the potential immortality of the human species, and whatever other species we want to immortalize. So, but I mean, th- those are high bars, right? So, uh, you know, like, things that don't fit the bar, fun. Um, what other stupid reasons people torture food. animals for? Not food, I think. It depends on when the food. When you yeah. have other options. When you, when you have other options, I think. Uh, I don't know. Oh, we didn't talk about this last time. I remember that was the one thing I, I mentioned seconds away from turning off the mic. Vegetarianism? We didn't talk about food preferences at all. And I don't know how far we're into this if we want to get to emotions at all on No, this we one. did talk a little bit about it. Did we? Yeah, yeah. About so, uh, chickens versus pigs versus oh, cows. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Right. Not too much, but we did touch on it. Right. So, um, I'm, I'm vegan. Mostly vegan. And the two people... Ayash and Steven that I'm here with are not. Um, they're not only not vegan, they're also not vegetarian. I know that a lot of people maybe don't get that distinction. I guess I'm trying to say that they eat meat. I feel I feel like I'm being shamed right now. But to further shame you, I, I will say that I feel bad about eating meat. I well, I don't as as much as possible. I don't eat any pork products. I don't eat pork either. One yeah. of the reasons that I was because I like dogs and I love dogs. Trying to come up with some ways to do debiasing is. Because if people are eating meat, they might have motivated reasoning. Okay. Um, it actually would be really nice for you if you put a lower moral weight on animals or... It's true. It makes my life easier. It makes your life easier. It means you don't have to live with as much guilt. Um, so trying to get away from, from that scenario where we're coming into this with incredible incredible biases i think debiasing is one of the the core techniques of good rationality and there are lots of things that you can do even quick little ones 
and I don't want to get into one of my favorites until we do a whole episode on it, but um, we should have done it at the beginning of this one, and we didn't, so I won't even mention it until next time. But there, there's a good one coming up. Okay. Uh, eventually. So, um, but this is this is kind of an emotionally charged topic, uh, especially since Katrina was was bummed out uh, that my my position updated in the wrong yeah. direction. I was so bummed uh, out that I asked to do a second part. I was like, no, I I must represent this better. No, I love animals. I always have. That's why I've dedicated my life to helping them. And I, I think that I love animals too. So, I mean, there's a difference between like how much they matter because I love them and how much they matter if I wasn't around. Um, but, you know, as far as all of that emotional attachment goes, it is a decent segue into talking about emotions as, as a larger topic. Except I think, um, how, how late are we? How long have we been recording? 59 minutes. Yeah, so we're... I mean, if we don't want to start another one-hour episode at this point. So... It's a beautiful segue for next week. Yes. It if is. you are okay with waiting until next week... That's fine. At next two two weeks from now when we do this, I'll even be more prepared to engage with you guys about emotions. Cool. Emotions and rationality. Um, in the meantime, do you want to get into some of the listener feedback? Yes. I will remark that we now have, as of recording on August 11th, 10th? What's the date? As of, as of August 11th, we have a handful of reviews on iTunes. Uh, I'm not going to read all of them, but we're stoked. Thank, Thank you so much you for taking so the time to do so. Thank you so much for reviews. Rock. You yeah. are really great. And yeah. we read them to each other, and we felt really good just now. So thank you very much for making us feel happy. Yeah, it was great. Let's see. As far as listener feedback. We got one comment from someone named Kevin McFarlane on thebayesianconspiracy.com in response to the Street Epistemology episode. Hi, guys. Just discover your podcast this week in the trending section of my app, Podcast Addict BT Dubs. They said BTW. <laughs> <laughs> After listening to number four, Street Epistemology I had a question. On one hand, you espouse rationality as a goal worth pursuing. I do too. But then you spoke of the goal of increasing happiness. No doubt you have found happiness through your skeptical and rational friends, but I've generally laid down my quest to deconvert in the realization that most of the people who are deeply religious in my life are themselves and families and communities that are religious. For them to reject religion bring them possibly the greatest suffering because the family, friends, and community would feel rejected and that their beliefs are being attacked by that rejection. So deconversion is hard and usually produces immediate unhappiness that I'm sure you've experienced. Where would each of you say you lay on the spectrum between choosing rationality and happiness if they were mutually exclusive? They don't have to be, but let's make this a thought experiment. Thanks. Looking forward to listening to more good stuff. It's kind of like, if you had to choose between killing Mao and Hitler, who would you kill? Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, I see where they're coming from, but I don't necessarily think that uh, you can draw an argument or a, a plausible real-world scenario where they're mutually exclusive. Um, and so, like, that kind of makes, like, just just, like, burning rubber and wasting fuel trying to, trying, trying to find a good answer to it. Um, I think... For me personally, there's some worlds that it's not worth living in. And if I have to choose a world where I'm either happy and, you know, of the... I mean, if you can't use rationality, I'm assuming I'd have to be, like, of the mental caliber of a dog or something. If I have to be happy and stupid, or if I have to be miserable and rational, I'd really probably rather just kill myself. Because that is not a world that, that I want, want to be in. Option C! <laughs> See? There's always a, there's always a third choice. <laughs> <laughs> If it's if it's literally be unhappy and um, don't deconvert or be rational and be happy but irrational, I would choose being happy. 
Okay. I guess I wonder what necessarily it means really... to like be irrational. Like, does it mean yeah, like incapable I... of being? Does it mean incapable? Or does it simply? Are they simply talking about? So if they, if Kevin was simply talking about religion, like you have religious beliefs that are wrong, mm-hmm. versus and you're happy versus you don't and you're unhappy. I would definitely choose having religious beliefs that are wrong. I live in a world right now where I have beliefs that are wrong. I, I am the opposite. Because if, if it was just, you know, religion and happy or irreligion and unhappy, I would choose irreligion and unhappy. Because I would much rather uh, know the truth about the world than be happy. Well, how unhappy are you? Uh, because what, right now or hypothetically? Because no, no. <laughs> I have been extremely unhappy in some, in some stretches of my life and I managed to get through it. So I, would, I could be very unhappy and no. still be okay with it. I... I do I not think... want to be miserable. I don't want to be miserable. I want to I want to have a good life. I highly value happiness. I value happiness more than being right. Okay. See, I, I don't. The good news is being less wrong makes me more happy. See, that's the that's thing, that's... though. Is <laughs> initially, initially, it may not. And for many people, and this is going to be a judgment call on anybody who wants to try and approach somebody about this, but initially, yes, if you're going to, um, if you're going to look into these things and deconvert and you know lose a spouse or connection with your family that would suck for a while but it's quite possible that on the other side of what's called the valley of bad rationality you could you could retire peaks um where you not only get the joy of you know finding a partner that you can get along with again and you know whatever forming new connections but also the joy of like i guess further exploration further exploration and there's there's a a kind of of happiness that comes from being right or being less yeah. wrong, yeah, um, yeah, there is. So totally. like, and I guess that, but that's not that's not quite exactly how I want to put it. I'm not sure if I can articulate it there's, in the course of this sentence, but uh, there's there's something to be said about. Um, um, no, I, I I know I said this before uh, about the I think maybe it was even the last episode that it's better to be a miserable Socrates than a happy pig, which is a a statement I agree with. But I I mean part of the problem for me is that uh, basic simplistic religion is so simplistic that. It feels like a a sort of a lesser order, a lesser, a qualitatively lesser way of being. You know, it is you. It, Were you, you lose some complexity in your life? Yes, I was. Okay. And I know that's not necessarily that always the case because there are very complex types of religion made for people who are you know the highly introspective type. There's the Jesuits who are basically the atheists of the of the Catholic community. Anyway, I mean, they I know they aren't really, but. As close as you can get while still being Catholic. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And and they that's where all the really high high functioning, highly analytical Catholic people go to into the Jesuit branches. Um so there there is those outlets in religion, which is nice, but if we're just talking about standard basic, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know religion, to me that's that's just that's a different level of thinking which is less rich and and like I said, I put I put moral weight on intellectual complexity and I would feel like I am less of a human if if I were to you reject think thinking things. those things just for the process, just for the sake of being happy. Let me let me think of it this way: if you were if you were told you could go back to that, you would say no. I'd feel diminished. Yeah, is that about what you're saying? Totally. I think I think I completely agree. But coming from another perspective, where um, my brother-in-law, his faith gets him up in the morning. His faith comforts him when he's down. His mm-hmm. faith. Um, 
helps him get through every day. And he doesn't feel like he would be able to do that without his faith. Well, then he should probably keep his faith. He should keep his faith. Yeah, yeah that's, if, that's if, why if I think it's, it's definitely a, an, a case-by-case basis. Yeah, if it's um, literally to the point where you probably could not get out of bed and you might kill yourself if you don't have that, then you shouldn't risk it. It, right. it, it is. There are people who, and I guess and I, also, I can't be sure because I don't have a, a large enough sample size, but there are people who are going through what your stepbrother, or your brother or stepbrother, you said. Uh, my brother-in-law. Your brother-in-law. I knew it was, I got those confused earlier too. There are people who are going through the exact same feelings that he has, but can do it anyway, even without religion. So like there, there, there are, there are ways to get around those problems. That's not like there's, yeah. there's one cure for it. And it could be that having these other tools to get through it are more generalizable to other kinds of ways of being happy. There's but, a lot within science that is inspiring, like awe-inspiring and mentally inspiring and just makes you love humanity and want to, want to do things with your life. It's not that doesn't all just come from religion and from thinking that the sky daddy loves you, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the the great lies that religion has a monopoly on all right. those yeah. kinds of experience. Also, we can move away from religion right. a little bit. Well, and... I did want to say really quickly uh, uh-huh. in in reference to him about uh, that his relatives would lose a lot of happiness if they were to leave their religion. Uh, I kind of feel like that is a sort of hostage taking. It, it to me it feels very similar to in the fifties. People would say, uh, you don't want your children to be gay because they will be miserable. Mm-hmm. And the reason they'll be miserable is because society is fucking horrible to them and would make them miserable. But that wasn't the fault of them being gay. That was the fault of society being shitty. So if their lives are made miserable when they leave their faith, that's probably because their faith is shit and makes the lives of unbelievers shitty as opposed to them necessarily being less well off intrinsically. Right, but... They have a different environment, right? Mm. So if we're talking about existing in a certain environment and adapting and a huge amount of what we do as humans is conform. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important that we, we conform socially in many ways. We're in an environment where we can conform in ways that we think we want to. And um, and in whatever town he's living in, that might not be the case. Yeah, is, that, is that an argument for staying in the closet in the 1950s? It is. Yes. Yeah. So Anyone. I guess I guess that's the case. If if you live in the equivalent of the nineteen fifties with regard to gayness, uh It also probably depends a lot on your own personality. I'm very much a kind of fuck 'em all, burn the place down when it comes to that sort of thing, but I understand that a lot of people aren't, and if everyone was like me, society might be worse off. I'm not sure. Maybe it would be better off, but uh, I see where there's <laughs> Katrina shaking her head, no, she's like, No one should be like you, Eniosh. <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> But, oh, no. but no, there's a lot of people who just don't, aren't... See, I get a charge out of fighting sometimes. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Fuck y'all. I don't care. Uh, you too. <laughs> you never had fun arguing with the looking with somebody? You didn't, uh, you didn't enjoy today's discussion? I did. I, there's some, there's I, I don't know. I don't, I don't like it when it's negative. I don't, like, I, don't, I, I don't like it when it is the fuck you all approach okay. that Inuyash is describing. That, that said, or, you know, some of the things that... And it, never mind. Yeah, no, and it's, it takes all different kinds of people, and that's one of the wonderful things about humanity, right? So I can see for some people it may not be the optimal strategy to, to be like that. Right. But there's also... Um, I saw a survey question once, and this reminded me of it, where if you learn the truth about X, would you still... And it was horrible, would you still want to know? Okay. I always say, oh yeah, I still want to know, I still want to know. But that's also because I kind of have a little bit of faith in myself that learning the truth about whatever is not going to plunge me right. into a deep and horrible depression from which I cannot emerge. It is, God, what is it? Is it the lit- Litany of Egon? 
The Litany of Tarski. Litany of Tarski, uh, that, that which is, is already so, and acknowledging it doesn't make it worse. Oh, that might be Gendlin, I forget. There's okay. Gendlin and Tarski, who knows. But the... And there yeah. was another one where everything boils down to normality. Like, no matter what you learn about the world, the world itself hasn't changed, so it all reduces to being normal. Right, and... Christina, what was the last thing you said? It jarred something that I wanted to acknowledge, but I forgot. Uh, it slipped past me with it. I just mentioned the the survey question. Um, if you could, if learning the truth about a right. thing, if it's horrible, would you still want to know? Yeah, of course I'd still want to know. But the question wasn't, would it make your life horrible? It was, is the thing is horrible. Right. No, I, I totally understand. But that, that I think, raises what it's like to come out on the other side of the valley of bad rationality. So, like, when you're on the when you're on the, the low peak over on the side where, you know, you're in a faith-based environment and you're okay with it and everything's jolly and whatever, um, you may... Some people... I didn't, but some people might... Uh, I, in fact, many people probably do. I don't want to generalize from my own, my own personal experience. Find a, a period of decreased happiness. But I think part of coming up on the other side of that is that you'll have better habits of thought that will let you confront situations like Katrina was, was positing, where uh, you're confronted with, you know, do you want to learn this bad truth or do you, uh, you know, want a persistent delusion? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you could have, man, my... You're uh, no longer held hostage by your false beliefs. Exactly. And you're not afraid to confront them. So, like, and you're not afraid, you, you, you're not, you don't have the mental habits of saying it's okay to blanket yourself from doubt. So, like, you know, that way when you're, like, you're having, say, like a medical symptom that you're worried about, you know, one, one approach might be to be like, well, you know, I'm going to just not think about it and everything will be okay. Another thought will be like, I should get that checked out. And then it's cancer either way. Mm-hmm. But checking it out and knowing before, like, it's visible, you know, to the naked eye or something or however bad it gets, uh, is probably a better prognosis. Mm, it so, depends on, yeah. It, it depends, depends on the cancer, on... I know. And it depends on the very specific situation. But Right. So, for example, um, we de-incentivize sex workers from getting checked for HIV because we have laws in place that make it illegal to be a sex worker if you have HIV. So they're incent- if you know you have it. Right. So they're incentivized, people are incentivized not to ever get tested for it, otherwise they're going to um, potentially uh, lose an important source of income and possibly be jailed. Or... Don't we also have a law against being a sex worker? <laughs> yes, in the United we States? have those too. Yeah, but it gets a lot more serious. The punishment gets a lot more serious. If you're um, if you're knowingly spreading HIV, or if you're so not, that's, that's that we not talked knowingly to... spreading, but just ha- knowingly have HIV whilst can... being a sex worker. Yes, you can. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, you you can you can be a sex worker without spreading HIV. But uh, as as the consumer, I'm sure you know like some disclosure there. Um, but and it's the... better for the people's health to know what their HIV status is, of course. Yeah. Not just for, yeah. Yeah, what if you're on cancer, you've got some crazy communicable disease that you picked up and you're ignoring the coughing because you're worried that it might be this scary disease. Mm -hmm. And because you want to ignore it, you're going to spread it to everyone you know and love. This is kind of like, um, the... It's kind of like religion. Or like, well, (laughs) like, 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 uh, Clifford that I mentioned in the episode on street epistemology, the, the boat captain, right? Uh Um, are you going to look at it or not? Well, you're, you're culpable either way if the thought occurs to you. Uh And if, Mm -hmm. if you're going to suppress that thought, you're... You're culpable, you know. So even if you even if you didn't get it confirmed and then spread it anyway, it's still your fault for not checking. So, uh, yeah, that's that's where it kind of comes down to on that. But I I would posit that I mean some people's mileage may vary. Maybe some people you know they lose their religion and their life sucks forever. I I'm sure those people exist. And so be cautious when there's a whole uh, lesson to be to be learned about other optimizing, right? You don't want to necessarily 
what works for you might not work for them. And a lot of religions are very happy to take the, the fallen sheep back into the fold. Also, consensual epistemology, probably? Consensual street epistemology? Have these arguments with people who consent to speak with you about it? Right. Who aren't like my brother-in-law, who'd be like, no. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about this. I... This is so important to me that I don't want to do anything that might endanger it. Yeah, I wouldn't so. advocate uh, really doing a lot of things to somebody against their will, but especially <laughs> especially yeah. shattering uh, worldviews. Um, th- I mean, that, that's a whole other thing. I don't know how you approach somebody delicately. I mean, that's the thing is like this is like, for a lot of people, it's a cat that's fairly easy to let out of the bag. And for others, you know, the bag is just powered shut with animantium and mithril, right? So like... <laughs> uh, you know, those people you're never going to get to, but other people just, just raising the doubt or like, you know, just voicing your own doubts in proximity to them, being able to hear you could shatter their worldview. So like, uh, that, that's a tough thing to do, right? Uh, or a tough, tough thing to consider and how cautious you want to be. It's the Santa Claus question. Let's, let's get away from religion. I got a lot of kids pissed at me because I told them there's no Santa. And I was the kind of kid who's like, I don't care what you want to know. This is the truth. Mm Mm-hmm. Santa's not real. You're living in a lie. Get it through your thick skull. And that was really... I was. I didn't have good social skills. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. I honestly don't remember my my deconversion from Santa Claus. I remember I remember roughly the... In, not the incident, but I remember never really believing it because Santa's handwriting was a lot like my parents. <laughs> and I remember being super proud. Not I was proud, not bummed. Maybe that says a lot about me as a child that when I was between four and six, I stayed up late enough to catch my parents putting the presents under the tree and thus confirming my hypothesis that they were behind it the whole time. Uh, so, Stephen does science. Right. But other people might have been devastated. So I don't really... my That's that's why maybe I was never bummed moving down from the peak uh, into the into the valley of bad rationality was that just kind of spoke to more who I was on a, on a gut level. So I'm not sure you're um, using the term correctly, though. Isn't the valley of bad rationality where you learn some rationality techniques and you can apply them to make your life worse? Yes. Not necessarily unhappy, but to make... You, like, you use rationality to defend uh, things that are not actually correct. It's a bit of both, okay. I think. Um, the short version is your version. Okay. Well, no, the short version is both. So, there. I guess maybe there's two versions. Um, I mean, yeah, it's been a while since I read about it. You, you can... You can if you know enough rationality to say, like, become a sophisticated arguer yourself, mm-hmm. and being able to like point out to other people, oh, by the way, you know that's so and so bias, but you're not smart, <laughs> you're not strong enough to put those to turn those techniques towards your own beliefs. Mm-hmm. That that's a bad place to be as well. I don't know if that's the same thing as the bad valley, but it sounds like a, a I, I, bad valley. No, I think that is what the bad, bad valley of bad rationality is. Yeah. The moral of the story is turn that rationality inwards. Yeah. Yeah, and be be cautious, but not necessarily completely unwilling to engage others about it. That um, brings me to a uh, comment which I wanted to read. It was on our street epistemology episode. Mm. Mr. Oliva said, One problem I have with teaching street epistemology very early is that it is so easy to become a good arguer and not a good rationalist. Mm. It's the same reason that I think before we teach hordes of biases, we need to teach the moral right of wanting to have true beliefs more than wanting to not change your beliefs. It, um, if not, you knock down all challenges to your beliefs. I see that street epistemology is much epistemology is much harder to turn to reinforce your own beliefs because it is based on encouraging rationality, but people are surprisingly resilient to changing and use every tool to make others believe what they do. Truth. Yeah, I was a good arguer before I was a good rationalist, for sure. Yeah, same so, here. Um, yeah, and I actually I responded to that saying I agreed. Uh, 
there's a lot of conversation going on in the subreddit. Um, I mean, you know, not hundreds, but you know, dozens. <laughs> did I tell um, you? Did I mention this on podcast? Because I know I told you personally. But uh, when I was, uh, fuck, what was it? Maybe sixth, sixth, seventh grade. Uh, I would argue, no, more than 6th grade, 7th or 8th grade, I would argue a lot on uh, BBSs, which is what the internet was before there was an internet, uh, with this guy who was maybe 2 or 3 years my elder, and he was an atheist, and uh, I was like, so why do you believe in this devolution stuff? Devolution? That is so cute. You gave a shout out to this guy, I think, on episode, whatever episode. Uh, oh, I did already. On five. But, okay, well, then never mind. I won't repeat myself. I didn't, I didn't devolution Yeah, I, I'm really glad he did repeat it, because he didn't say devolution before. I didn't know <laughs> that. Well, I, I'm not sure if I used the term then. I, I am now familiar with it. Oh, I really hope that. I'm disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I feel bummed out having, even though like I wasn't around for it, knowing that it might not have happened now makes me sad. Aww. I don't know what to say about that. But yeah, no, I was, I was very into arguing, and I thought I had a lot of things behind me, so I was, you know... I was practicing rhetoric even back then. That was one of the things they teach you, actually, in Jehovah's Witness uh, Church. You're supposed to go three times a week. And on Thursdays, they always dedicate one hour to rhetoric, to uh, how to argue people out of their beliefs and turn them into Jehovah's Witnesses. Vicious sophistry. Apologetics. Yes. Yeah, apologetics is another way to put it. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't just apologetics. It was just general arguing techniques. Oh, yes. Mm. Apologetics is more like defending yourself, not arguing against other people. Well, so. I mean, apologetics well, is specifically about religion. Yes, apologetics is specifically about Christianity. Sure. And, uh, and this was, in general, ways to, to convince people that you are correct. And oftentimes it was apologetics, but other times it was just general techniques. We can't get around to all the, the, topic, or the comments here in the, the subreddit, but there was one other one that I wanted to mention. Um, user, oh, Molten Glacier. I uh, recognize your name from one of the reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. Yay. Um, asked, isn't being a dick more a more general problem than just with the atheism slash rationality? Well, yeah. Yeah, I find, I find people are dicks whenever they believe something that someone else should believe wait whenever they believe that someone else should believe something other than what they do no I, I totally agree and I, and I, I I responded saying that and this is something I ought to have clarified on the episode that's why I'm bringing it up now was that um, it is a problem with a lot of groups so there, there are two two reasons why to bring it up for us in particular one is that our message is a harder sell like it's a hard sell already you know you're telling people this is basically a quote uh, verbatim from um, Phil Plate's talk. The the sales pitch is like, no God, no afterlife, no miracle cures, no souls, etc. You know, basically all, all the things that, you know, make some people's lives great, that's all bullshit. And so we're, we're not going to get that message. That, that's a hard sell anyway. And uh, if your way of conveying it is by getting in someone's face and calling them an idiot, um, you're definitely going to, to lose that person. There's a subset of people who don't like know-it-alls. <laughs> there's a large... There's there's a secret majority of people who don't like know-it-alls. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We're trying to win hearts and minds, not just arguments, right? And uh, then Molten Glacier replied, and I totally agree, that we also have the ability to change us, not them. Right. Mm-hmm. If, I, if, if by saying, hey, you shouldn't be a dick, and they're like, fuck you. It's like, all right, well, I tried. Um, yeah, so, but, but, but I, I cannot be a dick, yeah. right? So, and I'll probably uh, get more people if I am as all of the things being equal, I might get more people on my side than on them because I'm not being mean to everybody. You catch more flies with honey. Yeah. I also, I want to make a distinction between being a dick and being uh, affirmative. I, I recently got in a, not, not an exchange, it was a brief, just one email back and forth, no big deal, where uh, I mentioned that I, just my atheism in general, and this person was like, oh, well, yeah, but you know, we can't know everything, and so there's just as likely that this could be the truth as that, you know? And I, I guess the non-dick position would be like, oh, yeah, well, I guess you're right. We don't know everything. But I was like, no, 
I, I dismiss your god belief out of hand. These are the reasons why. I don't have any problem saying that. And maybe some people would consider that to be dickish, but I wasn't getting up in his face. I was just being firm about, I think this is easily dismissible, and I am not going to make any apologies about it. Or that. you can say, you're right. We absolutely don't know everything. Yeah. We, we know a very small fraction of the things that there are to know. And, but um, every god I've ever been presented with is um, easily not... Uh, but we do. It lives we, in the same category. But my we head do is what we can. Yes, exactly. Right, but we do what we can to assign probabilities to things based yes. on what we do know and what we can reason. And this is this is why I've come to this conclusion instead of this other one. Right, and, there, and that might be a nicer way to say it. Well, and I also mentioned, <laughs> which I don't know if this was nice or not, but I did mention that I hear this argument a lot, and it's true that we don't know everything, but that uh, suggests that uh, if this is your evidence then the position that suggests is strong agnosticism, but whenever I hear someone make this claim, they are never a strong agnostic. They're always kind of the wishy-washy spiritual, but this is why I can believe in my God, right? And uh, I don't accept that. That is not a good argument for your position. To it be doesn't... fair, I have definitely heard the argument we don't, there's so much we don't know from strong agnostics. I have too. And in, in fact, that, case... that is the argument that strong agnostics tend to make. I have heard that <laughs> online. I've never met anyone in person that made that uh, claim as a different, strong agnostic. Different friends. Yeah. But uh, I think Enosh's point stands, and that's true, that is the correct position for an agnostic. Mm -hmm. uh, but Enosh's point stands that I do, I've met people too, where they say, we don't know everything, therefore Jesus was born of a virgin, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, okay, so how do you know all that if we don't know everything? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of things we know that we that we can be more sure of than that, right? right. Well, no, because, so like, it, it's it's their their catch-all refutation to, to challenge, right? Um, they're not actually out there endorsing what they're saying. They're just they're but just saying that. Maybe that it's phrase. part of a more complete argument. You start with we don't know everything, just to you know like get somebody off of the one hundred percent ledge, mm -hmm. and then you go, here's some things that we do know from the Bible or from <laughs> from this or from that or whatever. Right. Yeah. And it was said that Harry Potter would fight the Dark Lord. There was a prophecy about it, and it happened in a later book. Damn Where does strange. that sound familiar? Um, one of the one of the key pieces of evidence, apparently, in support of the, the efficacy of the Bible is the fulfilling of prophecy. Okay. Uh, which is well, weird. that would be. I mean, if if the prophecies were fulfilled, that is how we get good signs. Uh, yes, but how hard, how, hard is it, how hard is it for an author to write another book saying that the prophecies were fulfilled, right? Oh, right. it's not. Not well, hard at all. Yeah. Uh, that's why we dismiss the religious prophecies, but we're kind of in awe of the science ones. What's the claim? Um, no, or not the claim, but the, the quote. I don't remember if I'm recalling it exactly correctly, but I love this quote, so I'll paraphrase. Uh, priests say they can move mountains and no one believes them. Scientists say they can move mountains and no one doubts them. Right. It's pretty I don't awesome. think scientists talk about moving mountains unless uh, it's, you know, orogeny. A mountain building event, you oh. know, caused by plate tectonics. Um, I, I think we've moved a number of mountains if there was gold under them or other valuable minerals. I see. And yes, I guess we have been responsible for more mass wasting than... Uh... <laughs> Someone's got to use that gold. Right. Um, <laughs> point is, there was a mountain there and now there isn't. <laughs> as far as dickness, there's, there's one last thing to say is that when... When you get further into the rationality community, you'll find people that are more, not just comfortable, but like eager to be challenged, not with necessarily dickishness, but with the, with the bluntness that Enosh was talking about. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I'm wrong about something, I want, I want my friends uh, to come right out and say, you know, Stephen, I'm not going to 
cherry coat this for or sugar coat this for 20 minutes that's stupid and here's why <laughs> this is right? why i want um, cherries yeah Ozzy, <laughs> the thing of things uh, commented that when people come to uh to rationalist forums they'll argue with them and the rationalists are like "Ooh, they want to be friends and they argue back and the people that aren't rationalists are like these assholes are arguing with me why yeah so that's that's how rationalists make friends by arguing some of them anyway not all we'll talk about crocker's rule at some point do we have any more comments that is all i had there, we like, like said, there were a handful others, but uh, I don't think we have time to get to all of them. But, you know, I do encourage the discussion. I'm happy that people are coming by the subreddit and uh, writing us via email or coming to the website and uh, sharing your thoughts and feelings. If you want them public, email us. Um, if you want them semi-public, post them on the website and slightly more public, maybe subreddit. I think in that order. Um, <laughs> so I think more people probably visit the subreddit than the website, but you, you can't track the numbers of visitors. Although I don't think you can. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to us. We always appreciate it. Thanks for writing in, and we will talk to you in two weeks. Thanks. (laughs) Bye. Orogeny is when mountains are made? That's the term? It's a mountain building event. That sounds kind of erotic. Orogeny? Yeah, yeah. It's like you have erogenous zones, right?